You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, for the truth it contains, for how it reveals you to us. And I pray now as we look at this this ancient feast, Lord, we would see the modern day application of it and fulfillment of it in your Son, and we give him the glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, for his sake. So we are looking at Pentecost, or Shavuot, as it's called in Hebrew. And what I want to accomplish with this study is to really just try and give you some additional depth, background, and history to understand this event. Because of all the feasts, they're all very important. Many in the church, I think we fail to grasp the full understanding of the feasts, and we do ourselves a disservice because we miss lots of amazing things in the text and theology behind them. But Pentecost is one feast that the church has generally made a little bit of a fuss over, but I think we still miss a lot of the depth of it. So all I want to do this morning is really try and help you to understand what you're reading when you read Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is unique among all the feasts for a number of reasons that hopefully you'll see as we go through. And with this background, we'll come away with a deeper appreciation for what actually transpired on that day of Pentecost all those years ago. Now, this is a shared feast, and by that I say that Jewish people around the world today are celebrating Shavuot, and people like us around the world are celebrating Pentecost. It's one of those few times where we we share this feast, and that's a good thing. It's also known as a birthday feast, and I'll explain that as we go through. Hopefully, it'll become very clear. So let's read our opening text this morning, though, and if you could all just stand as we read this first bit of the Word of God, please. This is Acts chapter 2. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of them hear you in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya and Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? Please be seated. What does this mean? And that is exactly the same question that we are going to really be trying to answer today. What does all this mean? And now what you'll find mainly in the church is that looking at Pentecost or the events of Acts chapter 2 necessitates a lot of discussion about things like what is the baptism of the Spirit? What are the signs that you have been baptized? When does the baptism occur? Are tongues to do with the baptism of the Spirit? And whilst these are good discussions, necessary discussions to have in your theology, I'm going to say that they are not really related to what's going on in Acts chapter 2. That's a discussion that you can have through the book of Acts and into the epistles. But what I want to try and show you is that as I was studying this, those questions really didn't come up. And hopefully you'll see why as we go through 
this study together this morning. What I want to do is try and help you to think about what would those first apostles been thinking at the events of Acts chapter 2? What was going on in their heads? What associations would they have been making as part of this festival? And hopefully that'll help us have a much deeper understanding. Now, Pentecost. We call it Pentecost. Pentecost comes from the Greek word for 50. That's why the church often calls it Pentecost. The, Greek, uh, the Hebrew Shavuot means weeks. It's known as the Feast of Weeks. It's quite often called. And it's called this because of the way that you count it. It's one of these feasts that is actually dateless and you have to count it. Actually, let's just read the text. Let's go to Leviticus 23 and we'll read what this is actually about. Leviticus 23 is the chapter that details all the feasts of Israel, starting in verse 15. It says, You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the waver offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. You shall bring in from your dwelling places two loaves of bread for a wave offering. Made of two tenths of an ephah, they shall be of fine flour, baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Now, obviously to us, that's quite a foreign concept. We don't understand all these weeks and these counting issues. What it's basically saying is that in order to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, you had to count seven weeks, 49 days, from the day after the Sabbath of the Passover. And then the next day after the 49 would be the 50th day, and that's when you celebrate Pentecost. And that is actually today that it, this is happening. So it is the 50th day, and that's hence Pentecost. That's where we get the name from. Now, what I want to immediately draw your attention to that is very interesting about this feast that we often forget is that this feast is intimately connected to the Feast of Passover. The count starts on the day after, the Sabbath after the Passover, and the two are very much connected. In fact, quite literally, you would be counting every single day and it would give you that connection. We start here and we end here. So strong was this connection that in Jewish tradition, uh, Pentecost is often referred to as the gathering rally of Passover. Passover is not actually quite complete until Pentecost has happened. And this has huge uh, implications for our theology. So Israel was to count 50 days in order to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, and every single day they had to remind themselves of Passover. And that's the point that this is making here. You remember in Exodus chapter 12, Passover is given such importance in our lives, in the lives of the Israelites at least, that it was made the head of the months, the month when Passover, it was made the first month. And therefore, it was the head of the year, it was called, to celebrate the redemption out of Egypt, the redemption as they crossed over the, the sea and into the, the wilderness and then ultimately into the promised land. And we know that that is, of course, a picture used in the New Testament to speak of our exodus from sin and bondage into salvation. And this is what we're looking at here. So as Israel counted the weeks from Passover to Pentecost, they were to look back and remember their redemption every single day. And likewise, we are never to forget that it is our Messiah, the Passover lamb who gave his life and that we may have the unspeakable riches that we get given in the new birth. We are never to forget our Messiah. Israel's redemption from bondage, our redemption from sin are the same thing. They were both accomplished by the Passover lamb. That is what the Passover speaks to us of. And we remember that every single day. This is what we remember when we take communion. Therefore, just as 
The priests would have come to the tabernacle or the temple and they would have had a special prayer every day before they offered their sacrifices for the day, counting these 49, 50 days. They would have done that. We too must remember the cross before we offer and when we offer spiritual service to God. These two things are very much linked and they cannot be separated. It all starts with Passover, but it doesn't finish in many ways until we have Pentecost. And we're going to look at what this means for us today. Pentecost was actually one of the three major festivals that you had. There were seven major festivals that Israel were commanded to obey, but there were three particular ones where they were told you had to go up to Jerusalem. These were the big ones. Pentecost was one of them. Passover, unleavened bread. It was a very important festival. In the final few days leading up to it, you'd get this big celebration where all the pilgrims would come up and they'd go through. And on Shavuot, the day would change 49 to 50. Obviously, they started in the evening before. And that's Shavuot. And it's actually an agricultural festival. It was to do with the wheat harvest and the barley harvest. And I want to give us the spiritual application of this this morning. All of the feasts in some way point to Messiah. So you had Passover that I've just spoken about. Obviously, it's the one we understand the most, Passover lamb being Jesus Christ. Unleavened bread, we've spoken of leaven being a symbol of sin and how this points to the sinless body of Messiah that was offered on Passover. Then we have the first fruits, which happens, which was Christ's resurrection. It says he's the first fruits from the dead. And then you have this 49-day period, and then you have Shavuot. And this is where it gets a little confusing. Everyone can see how easy Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits fits into the cycle of the messianic fulfillment because you have the lamb, Jesus dying, Jesus was sinless, and then Jesus' resurrection. But then after 49 days, you have this other thing that happens. And it, it gets a little blurry. This is Pentecost. So I want to show us through the text of Acts chapter 2 what is happening here because it is no coincidence that the events of Acts chapter 2 happened on the feast of of Pentecost, but we do need a little bit more background to fully appreciate it. So let's track with me here. After the Feast of First Fruits, this was Christ's resurrection. He was the first fruits from the dead. Then we have the 50 days. Those 50 days are referred to as the counting of the Omar. Omar is just a weight of corn, but every day you would count one of these days. It is within those 50 days that you get all of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. So this is why it's a very significant period. So Christ was resurrected, and then within this 50 days, he makes all of his resurrection appearances. So on the first day of the Omar, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, the, the other group of women, and also to Simon Peter. On the second day of the Omar, he met those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. A week later, he met the 12 again. Eight days after that, he met Thomas. And then on the 40th day of the Omar... That's when he ascended into heaven. They celebrate that as Ascension Day. But before, you remember the story, before he went to heaven, he told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father to be fulfilled, which was going to be fulfilled in its fullness at the Feast of Pentecost. Let's just read that section of text in Luke chapter 24. It makes a few connections that are really interesting. This was Jesus. He says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And this was the promise that is looking to its fulfillment on the Feast of Pentecost. But notice the connection that Jesus makes between the law of Moses, obviously being fulfilled in him, but the law of Moses and the Feast of Pentecost. And this is a very significant connection that would have rolled naturally in the Jewish people's minds at the time. And I want to explain to you why. To understand this, we need to understand what was happening. In Jewish tradition, the sages of Israel taught that the very first Pentecost actually happened, the date coincided with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And this is, this is important to understand, it, it shows up in a lot of ways. The first Pentecost coincided with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And they actually calculate that from the Bible. It was 50 days after they left Egypt that they ended up at the foot of the mountain where they were given the law. And therefore, this season, this Pentecost season, is often called the season of the giving of the law. And it's a time in Israel where they will be celebrating the giving of the law. It's actually customary to stay up the entire first night and study the word of God. And they eat sweet pancakes to represent that the word of God is sweet, sweet to our taste. All these traditions that come from this belief. But I want to just put that connection into your head as we go forward. And this is why, in many ways, the Feast of Pentecost was considered, this event at Sinai, the actual birth of Israel. Yes, they existed before in many ways, but it was actually the giving of the law that unified these 12 tribes into a corporate group, and they made that communal covenant together. That's why I say it's a birthday feast. It was the birthday of Israel in many ways, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. That was the first Pentecost. And of course, it's no coincidence that the birthday of the church also happened on the Feast of Pentecost, and we'll explore that more. This is what is actually going on in Acts chapter 2. So you have that event on Mount Sinai. The author, uh, the Apostle Luke, he makes it very clear in Acts chapter 2. He depicts the entire event of Pentecost as a second Mount Sinai experience, a second giving of the law, a second birthday experience. And he makes pains in the text to make the parallels and replay what is happening uh, in Acts chapter 2 with what happened in Exodus 19. So let's read Exodus 19, a bit of it anyway, just so I can draw out a few of these parallels for you, because it's quite important to see them as we understand what's going on. I'm sorry, I I thoroughly enjoy these sorts of things, this background that gives us an insight into the mind of the apostles in the first century, which is really where we can understand what they were thinking, and it just helps us understand the teaching uh, of the New Testament in such deeper ways. So, excuse me. Exodus, thank you, amen. Exodus 19, verse 16 to 19. This is the giving of the law on Sinai. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the fire of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered with thunder. 
So that's the event in Exodus of Sinai. That was the first Pentecost that ever happened, if you could put it like that, the giving of the law. And what we're seeing in Acts chapter 2 is parallel to that. Let me pull out a few of these parallels. Luke, first of all, Luke mentions the tongues as of fire, hence the red, okay? The tongues as of fire. Similarly, when God first appeared, when he descended upon the mountain to give Moses the law, it says that he did it in the form of fire. And that's immediately the first connection in the mindset of first century Jewish people. On the Feast of Pentecost, that is exactly what they would have been thinking. The second uh, major association, and this is a fascinating one, and this actually comes from Jewish tradition, not from the text here, but, and it's very unusual, they would associate, they actually taught, that when the law came on Sinai, it came as a multiplication of languages. So let me read to you just from the Talmud. It says, Every single word that went forth from the Omnipotent was split up into 70 languages for the nations of the world. Going back to the 70 nations from Genesis chapter 10. So the teaching, and whether it's a tradition or whether it's true, that's not, not my point. The Jews in the first century knew about this tradition. And the apostles knew they would have known about this tradition. That when the law came, it was heard in all the languages of the nations. And that is exactly why... In Acts chapter 2, verse 4 to 5, it says, When the Holy Spirit was given, men from every nation spoke in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So you have a replaying of what is happening here in the minds of the people. There's no way they could not have made that association. And then third, Luke describes in Acts chapter 2, a noise like a violent rushing wind when the Spirit came down. And although the account in Exodus, again, does not mention wind... In Jewish tradition, we, we learn this from the Jewish historian Josephus, he says this, there was a strong wind that became a mighty tempest on the third day of Israel's stay at Sinai. So again, you just have it within the mindset of the Jewish people at that time, they associated all of these things with the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, which is why you have uh, Luke depicting the events in exactly the same manner. This is, again, I find these parallels absolutely fascinating. In the minds of those people... There's no way they could not have made this Pentecost connection between these two events. And that's one of the reasons I believe, like they exclaimed at the end, they were greatly perplexed and they were saying to one another, what does all this mean? Are we witnessing a second fulfillment of the giving of the law? What is, they didn't quite understand, but that's going to become clear as we go through. The fourth thing, and this again is another reason where you just cannot avoid the connection between these two events. Peter's proclamation. Acts chapter 2, they're filled with the Spirit. Peter gets up, he gives this sermon. And the gospel resulted in 3,000 new believers being saved. you remember when it says that at the end of the book of Acts? Now Luke's reference here is obviously suggesting a restoration of the 3,000 individuals who died when the law was given. You remember the story. Moses came down from the mountain. He had the tablets in his hand. And because the Israelites were tired of waiting they had decided to build the golden calf and they were worshipping the calf as their god. And the law came down and it brought judgment with it. The law is holy, just and good and it was the law that revealed the sin of the people and brought the judgment because they were involved in idolatry at the bottom of the mountain. So the fourth contrast between these two 3,000 figures is a contrast by, it's like an inverse contrast. You can't help but see the connection, but it's, the complete, it's like an inverted contrast that we have here. It demonstrates to those Jews in Acts chapter 2 that what is happening, it is a replaying of Sinai, yet something is different, because they are seeing 3,000 come to life, 
whereas before it was 3,000, and they all would have been aware of the story of, of Exodus. Now remember this. I'm talking about it being a giving in the law, and usually we have this understanding, don't we, the way we, we contrast spirit and law. The two are two completely different things. We, the church is with the spirit, Israel with the, is the law. And I know why we do that with the language. But I'm saying, my argument here is that Acts chapter 2 is a replaying of the events at Sinai, except it's, it's on Mount Zion now, but it's uh, a replaying of this event. So how is Pentecost and the coming of the spirit a giving of the law? surely those two are completely separate. That's the mindset that we usually have. We separate those two things. Now, I want to just push it that a little bit. You see, what happened at Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit was the coming of a new law. The law there, using it in the sense of instruction and teaching, and also the institution of a new covenant. It was the giving of the Spirit that actually consummated the new covenant. Jesus ratified it in his blood, but it was not completely fulfilled in the formation of the church until the Spirit came. And when you read about what the Spirit did in the Bible on that day, it is always written in terms of a coming of a law, the giving of the law. And let me just read you a couple of texts to explain this, and you'll see what I'm getting at. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is an Old Testament text that's speaking of the new covenant. It says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So it is a giving of a law, but it's different. 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul makes this very clear for us. He says, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us. Now look, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And you cannot say there is not a connection being made there between Sinai and Zion, between Pentecost with the Israelites and Pentecost here. And he's saying the coming of the Spirit, the descent of God, was the giving of a new law, but it was the law associated with the new covenant. It was the law of the Spirit of life. And that is why we had the 3,000 coming to life as opposed to the 3,000 coming to death. It wasn't a law that was engraved on tablets that revealed the sin. It was actually a law that was engraved on the human heart that revealed the Saviour. You understand? This is the dramatic contrast. This would have been absolutely monumental to the Jewish people at this time. So it is a law. It is the law of the spirit of life. And we find this language being used throughout the rest of the, the, rest of the New Testament. It's festal language. It's Pentecost language. Romans 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of, the sin, and, of sin and death. When the law came on Sinai, it revealed and judged the sin of the Israelites who were worshipping the calf at the bottom of it. The law reveals sin, and it's that sin that condemns us, but the Spirit reveals the Saviour who redeems us. Hopefully you can begin to see the parallels that it's happening between Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, and the Pentecost on Sinai. But there's more. The celebration of Pentecost, Shavuot, was the day that Israel were to offer their first fruits of the wheat harvest. We read this in Numbers 28 and a few other places. Now, since Pentecost is the celebration of Israel's first fruits in many ways, Luke now uses this relationship to show how there is a harvest happening, but it's a harvest of the Spirit, and it is a work of redemption. And this is, again, 
a language that we find throughout the New Testament. Romans 8, 23. Again, Romans 8, as you know, is one of the, the main theological books in the New Testament that teaches us about our salvation. And it's no mistake that you find Pentecost language and Passover language all throughout that book. Romans 8, 23, listen. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. And where do you think? What, what phrase is it? First fruits of the Spirit. That is talking about Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. It goes on, it says, even if we ourselves groan within us, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. You see, Jesus was the first fruits from the dead, guaranteeing that more would come. But then when the Spirit came, it says that we are the first fruits of the Spirit. The Feast of Pentecost was about bringing your, the first corn, the first wheat rather, that you harvest to the priests. When Acts chapter 2 happened on Pentecost, those 3,000 were the first fruits of the spirits and they were brought to God. And it's an exact replaying of what is happening here. It's, it's fascinating. And I, I just want you to get a, a feeling of how integral the feasts of Israel were to New Testament theology. Because often we just make that separation. Feasts are for Israel, they're old. Jewish people celebrate them today. We don't. And I'm not saying we celebrate them in a legalistic way, but we need to understand them because they are intimately involved with the New Testament, with the Messiah, with all these things that we do in our churches. We must understand them. And I, I believe it is a real shame that for much of church history, we've neglected this. And in fact, for much of church history, it's actually been church law that we do not engage in the feasts of the Jews, said derogatory. And that is, unfortunately, a tragic a part of church history, but... Today, we want to make sure that we get the full teaching and understanding of these feasts as much as the Spirit reveals it to us. So let's go a little bit further with this, because there's still more parallels happening in Acts chapter 2. Now remember, what we're trying to do is I want you to go away from this to be able to read Acts chapter 2 and just have, with a fresh pair of eyes, and just see it in 3D. You know, We've all read Acts chapter 2 many times, we've heard about the coming of the Spirit, but I'm hoping that after this, you'll be able to see what that was actually what was happening there. Another Jewish tradition was that King David was born on the Feast of Pentecost and he died on the Feast of Pente Pentecost. All of the Jewish people in Israel at this time would have known that. King David, obviously, a massive figure, almost like Moses uh, in Judaism at that time. People were aware of the promises of the Davidic kingdom to come, the Davidic Messiah. This was all uh, in their minds at this time. And again, it is absolutely no coincidence that when the Apostle Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, he gets up and he gives that sermon that brings 3,000 new souls, that first fruits harvest of the Spirit into the kingdom. Who does he use to make his example that Christ was resurrected? He uses King David. There's no coincidence there. This is, it's all because this would have been in their minds. Let's read that portion of Acts chapter 2, just so you know what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 2, verses 29 to 32. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You get his tomb was with us to this day. And this is the day where they said that he actually was born and that he was died. You can see what he's making here. And he goes on, he says, And so because he was a prophet and knew God, uh, that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised him up, to which we are all witnesses. So Peter was taking what was naturally on the minds of the apostles at this time of King David, and he was using it to make an argument to the greater descendant of David, the Messiah. 
It just fascinates me, this. But let's go a little further. You remember I read the text of Leviticus at the beginning. And you might have picked up on it. It said this. I'll read it again. You shall bring in from your dwelling place two loaves of bread for a wave offering. Two tenths of an ephah. They shall be fine flour baked with leaven at first fruits of the Lord. They call this the two loaf witness. Now two is the number of witness in the Bible. You had to have two witnesses in court for a testimony to stand. You have to have two accusations against a church leader for that to stand. The Messiah sent his disciples two at a time. Uh, in the future, there will be two witnesses against the Antichrist. On and on, uh, it's a fairly well-established principle. One of the unique things, and this is the only time it's ever done throughout all of the Jewish feasts, is that these two loaves had to be baked with leaven. Did you pick up on that? Remember, usually it's unleavened bread, because leaven typifies sin. But here you have these two loaves that are actually commanded to be baked with leaven, and that is for a very specific reason. It seems to indicate that these two loaves, and if I could loaves slash people, that are being offered as first fruits are also sinners. Two people being brought to God who are sinners. Now, in Leviticus it tells us that these two loaves were also to be offered as the first fruits offering, in conjunction with another offering that was called the peace offering. So get that in your heads. Okay? It's all foreign to us. I know these, these festivals and sacrifices. Two loaves made with leaven had to be brought with a peace offering. And I believe the Apostle Paul explains what is happening here to us in his epistle to the Ephesians. Let's read this. Now, have this sort of festal imagery in your mind when you read this. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two loaves into one new man, thus establishing peace." You see all of those elements, the law of God, the peace of God, the spirit of God, the two loaves, the two people, all of those are in this here. Messiah is the peace offering, and he is uniting Jews and Gentiles into one body, the one new man as it's called, and that's why they call this the two loaves witness. It witnesses to the testimony that God desires to reach the world with the message of Messiah. And on Acts chapter 2, the church was commissioned and empowered by this new law, the spirit of God, to do just that, to take that message to the world. Finally, the body of Christ, the church, this one new man, was given a new title from Acts chapter 2 onwards. And again, you need a bit of background here. The Israelites considered what happened on Mount Sinai with the giving of the law as a, as a wedding contract. They considered it a marriage contract. That is what happened. And thus we see exactly the same thing, actually, with this second Sinai experience on Pentecost with the new covenant. And that's why you might notice in the Bible that from Acts chapter 2 onwards, one of the names of the church is the Bride of Christ. Again, you have this whole thing being replayed, and we are eagerly awaiting the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now, fascinatingly, at this time across the world, many people, Jewish people, would have been reading the book of Ruth in their synagogues today. And again, this is just not by coincidence. What is the story of Ruth about? Think about this. Firstly, if you read the book of Ruth carefully, you'll notice it takes place during the Feast of Shavuot. So it's happening at this time. It takes place during Pentecost. It's a harvest festival feast. Secondly, it tells the story of a man, Boaz, 
who is a man from the tribe of Judah. That's very significant. The story of Ruth is that this man from the tribe of Judah, who is a kinsman redeemer, takes a Gentile bride, a Gentile bride who chooses willingly to worship the God of Israel and brings her actually into the lineage of the Messiah. It pictures for us, Boaz pictures for us the greater descendant of King David, that one from the tribe of Judah, we call him the lion of the tribe of Judah, who at this time, again, on Pentecost, would redeem for himself a bride from among the Gentile nations. We call this the church, the one new man, Jew and Gentile together. This is what the story of Ruth is actually picturing for us. It is no mistake that that is the text being read at this time throughout the world today. I don't know about you, I find these things absolutely fascinating, how you just get these parallels on and on throughout the scripture. The entire spring religious season of Israel, the festal season, Passover to Pentecost, speaks of God's plan to harvest a holy people for himself. Jesus died as the Passover lamb, the sinless sacrifice. He rose and became the first fruits of the dead. Seven weeks later, we have the Holy Spirit. It came in power. It formed the one new man, the church, These Jewish believers who were there in Acts chapter 2, from every tribe, every nation, it says, they then begun the work of carrying the message of salvation back to their native lands where both Jew and Gentile would respond and thus fulfilling what they call the two loaves witness to the gospel. And today, Pentecost should speak to us about the sowing of the gospel, about this message that we have in the new covenant, which is really what all of our Christian lives are about, is living being part of and telling others of the salvation we have available through the new covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured for our sins. It speaks to us of sowing the gospel and of the ingathering of souls from both Jew and Gentile to become part of the body of Christ. And make no mistake, God wants a harvest from every kindred, tribe, tongue and nation in the world today. And Pentecost should remind us to pray and be involved in that work. And remember... We do that because Pentecost is linked to Passover. He died for us and he commissioned us. He anointed us with the Spirit to empower us to tell others of the redemption that we ourselves have received. And that is the message of Pentecost. Now I want to just end by saying a traditional Pentecost blessing. I will read the lines. The amens are for you guys there. So you say, May the Spirit who hovered over the waters when the world was created breathe into you the life he gives. May the Spirit who overshadowed the Virgin when the Eternal Son came among us make you joyful in the service of the Lord. May the Spirit who set the church on fire upon the day of Pentecost bring the world alive with the love of the risen Christ. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen and Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. We thank you for all the lessons that we have from it, Lord. We pray now that you just give us that burning desire to understand more of it, to see your Son in it more, Lord. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit to do this. We pray that you'd give us that burden for souls like you had, Lord, that we would understand the full picture of the Bible through your revealed revelation, Lord God. Lord, make us a church that's strong in spirit, Lord, and strong in the word. In Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. 
To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.